So I'm not so much talking about, a, you know, faith in, in Jesus or in some particular religious character or, or dogma or anything like that. But it's much more a sense of, uh, I, like to, I like to refer to it as a sense of mystery, actually. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Humans in Love. I've got a good one for you today. As always, I am talking to Blandine Wegener. Blandine is one of my yoga teachers here in Chiang Mai. She's been practicing Tantra yoga for well over a decade, and she is easily one of the most knowledgeable and insightful women I've ever met with regards to relationships, intimacy, sexuality, and all those good things that you probably heard us talk about in my first episode on Tantra back with her co-teacher, Mr. Uriel. Yariv. That was back on episode 14. Blandine is Uriel's partner as well as uh, his co-teacher here. And in today's episode, we go deeper into many of the themes that we covered in episode 14, but with Blandine's own take on her spiritual journey, what Tantra means to her, and how she came to be walking the Tantric path. Before we get into it, I'll remind you that ratings, reviews, subscriptions are absolutely crucial for any podcast success. So if you dig Humans in Love, please be sure to subscribe to the show. And while you're at it, why not let others know? Please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, I present to you Ms. Blandine Wegener. how you came to be walking this particular path. Have you always had an interest in spirituality? You grew up in Germany, right? And I can't imagine you being exposed to a lot of tantric ideas growing up in Germany. Or, or were you? Well, actually, to be precise, I grew up in communist Germany for the first part of my childhood. So East Germany. East Germany. Oh, interesting. And, uh, yeah, not much tantra there, as you can imagine. Um, yeah, basically... I mean, if, if we are already on this uh, note of spiritual awakening, I um, must say that actually I feel like I came out this way a little bit, just like feeling um, extremely connected to the universe around me and just having already states of divine ecstasy when I was a child. And um, I was actually always very fond of going to church, believe it or not. My parents were not, so they would stay home on Sunday and sleep in, and I would go on my little red bicycle. In, in East Germany? To the church, yeah. So what was that like? Because I've, I've read conflicting accounts of you know, how okay um, the East German government was with religious organizations. Yeah, not at all okay. Right. So like, if you were part of the church or just going regularly or having anything to do with it, then you would be immediately uh, under surveillance and my parents were anyways under surveillance because they were part of what was called the intelligence which is people that studied 
And um, so anyways, we had a car parked in front of our house very often with people surveilling us. So that was just a little add-on. And then anyways, I was... Um, I just started school when the war came down and then I start I continued going to to church also in western times. So it didn't make that much of a difference. Do you think that's why your parents didn't like going to church because they were concerned about sort of upsetting the local government even more or? I think it's more they got more lazy after the war came down because before the war came down they were very interested in going to church because it was like a way to oppose it was a, re a way of rebellion so they would actually go to a lot of demonstrations and be sure to be very visible in church and so on to make a point um, but then yeah I just continued going after the war came down and they also continued to go every now and again but not with the same enthusiasm that I had yeah and I just loved it I just loved sitting there in church and and singing and I just had this feeling that I'm surrounded by by a divine force somehow that was not so much related to the particular setting of the church but it was just one way to sort of express my connection with the divine and then eventually of course I grew up to be a teenager and um, then I hated the church obviously for a while of course also for the um, yeah, difficulties in history that uh, we cannot just ignore. Um, but uh, eventually, I just couldn't ignore that. I just, I just felt God in my heart. I just felt it. I just felt that there's an all-encompassing divine power within everyone and everything, and I have it in me, and everyone has it in them. And for me, it was just obvious. So I sort of couldn't deny that. So I was a bit exploring as a teenager and just seeing other philosophies and flirting a bit with Buddhism because that was like a hip thing at that time. Did and you read uh, Siddhartha? Yes, I did. Mm. As a teenager, Herman actually. Hess. Say again? Herman Hesse, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So that's a, a German must-read somehow if you're interested in the field. And... Um, yeah, eventually, in the beginning of my 20s, I moved to Berlin to study. And um, I was very much in, in an inner, inner search. And it was like it was coming to a place where it was really um, shaking me somehow. It was so such a need to understand the universe and to, to just come to some sort of conclusion with all these big feelings and states that I had inside regarding the divine somehow. So I would still go to church and I would try out a lot of different things just to sort of, yeah, get an outlook of what is there. And uh, I had uh, actually one door in my, in my room at that time when I was studying, and it was like a blind door, so it had like shelves behind it. And then inside of that door, I would open it, and inside I would have the plan of how I thought the universe works. So I would like <laughs> read a philosophy book and then add a little bit something there, or have like some understanding while sleeping under the stars or something, and then add it there. So I had my little uh, world, uh, universal view behind that door hidden. And then when I came the first time to um, the yoga class, actually that uh, belongs to the uh, system of schools that I'm still part of and teaching now here in Thailand, um, I just recognized, I was like, this is what I have behind my door. Like they are just explaining it with so much more detail and with the um, possibility to practice and to put it into a methodology and actually start moving on this path that I already felt so clearly in my heart. So, yeah, when I met the school for me, it was uh, probably one of the most boring yoga classes I ever had. It was 
not very well taught. Nevertheless, it was very, um, very touching for me to just feel that this is a place where, where I'm understood and where all this knowledge that I sort of intuitively feel in my heart is answered to and is put so clearly and is referred to old texts and so forth. And it was actually um, by the grace of a friend of mine that I was living with and um, he was already going to that same yoga class for some time and he was really intrigued and he told me every single day, look, this is really your thing, you should go there, you should check it out. But at that time I was not at all into it. I was riding motorbikes and taking lots of drugs and just being completely rebellious, crazy lady. And I was like, no, come on, I go there, stretch myself with some silly fitness ladies. <laughs> I'm not interested. But he was very persistent. So for half a year, just like a few times per week, he would tell me, look, really, really, come, this is your place. And um, then I told him, okay, I'm going to go there once just so that he shuts up. And I did, and I never stopped. I just went there and I immediately fell in love with a, with a path. I remember coming out of that class and just seeing light everywhere. It was such a clear moment of reckoning somehow. If you had to pinpoint it or boil it down, what was it that grabbed you so, so intensely? What, what, what do you think it was? Well, if I may be a little bit cheesy about it, I, I feel it was really like just recognizing that this is what I have to do in my life. This is my purpose. This is where I belong. This is my, even if you will, spiritual family. And I just belong to this path and to this community. This was the deepest feeling inside. Apart from that, of course, also my mind was intrigued because um, it was just offering so much knowledge and um, interesting correlations that I had thought of before but that I didn't have so clear somehow in my mind. So having the combination of a lot of knowledge, which for me is very intriguing, with this very clear feeling of, okay, this is it. You don't have to search any further. Just, you know, park yourself here, follow your purpose and you'll be good in this life somehow. That was the feeling. And just to nail it down a little bit more, um, the podcast I did with Uriel, your co-teacher, co we talked a little bit about some of the fundamental tantric principles. But do you remember even back then some of the initial ideas or principles or philosophies that really had an impact on you? Yeah, I guess um, also as Uriel mentioned in the, in the podcast, the thing that really struck me um, was that many of the um, ideas that I had come up with myself but also read in books around love, that they were just so clearly and practically and even implicitly incorporated into the teaching. It was even like, I mean, I don't remember anyone talking a lot about love in the first few weeks or months even of the course, maybe on the side when I was asking things about it but not in the course directly. And yet I just felt it. I just felt, okay, this is coming from exactly that place of heart that I was always looking for. And I remember having these like many revelations before entering into the yoga, yoga path, so to say, around how love works and how somehow by love we are all connected. And by, the, um, by having a heart, we are sort of all like a little center of the universe. I had all these visions around that. And then all of a sudden it was all falling into place with this focus upon um, entering the heart and Tantra really being a, a path of the heart where the, the whole first stage of the path is just about, okay, come and find your soul 
and enter into your heart. And from there, everything else will unfold. And I guess that was the most intriguing for me. I know I'm really trying to narrow this down. When you talk about entering into your heart, what does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. So um, I want to first mention a little bit, um, let's say, the traditional background, just to understand it a bit better as a feeling, because obviously the feeling can only be conveyed this much in words. But basically, the idea, not just in Tantra, actually, in, in quite a few systems, of entering into your heart, or sort of what's also called the step of awakening your soul, is basically a step where you are moving from the, the linear and mentally dominated way of thinking and perceiving yourself and the world around you into a much more, I like to call it spherical way of perceiving yourself, because this is sort of how it feels to me mostly. So if I think of my normal perception when I'm just in my everyday um, state of mind, then I have this linear unfolding, a bit like a computer. So, okay, I wake up in the morning and this is my timeline of the day and I perceive myself somewhat separated of the, from the universe, of course, also with some connective points, but they are very clearly drawn in. So it's somehow um, quite, um, let's say, a bit more the scientific approach, the, let's say, from the mechanical viewpoint, the scientific approach of feeling and seeing yourself and even thinking in, in that way, okay, I will now uh, first um, find out about what John is doing on midday so I can understand if we can have lunch together, so I can understand if I schedule my next appointment after that, so-and-so, and so forth. It's like a, a linear unfolding within time and within the entire understanding of the being. And then moving towards this, what I like to call more spherical perception of self, where what is fundamentally understood in Tantra, we are um, accomplishing the step of going from perception of ourselves as ego to perception of ourselves as soul. Um, the, the first thing that's, that happens is that this linear way of thinking and perceiving just collapses into a sort of um, unified perception of things. So when I'm in such a state, I might um, look at a certain person or at a certain object and then perceive that somehow removed from the linear and especially from the um, timeline that it might normally be uh, incorporated in. So instead of looking at that lamp over there and being like, okay, now it's, what, two years old and then eventually it will decompose and you know become particles again and so forth, that's like a timeline of looking upon this object. But if I look at this object and come from this heart space, as I would like to call it, or from the soul, then I would somehow see all the significances that this lamp has, like what is its meaning, what is its purpose, um, all the moments in time connected to this thing, to that object, somehow come together in the now and are even readable in the now, understandable in the now, so that somehow the understanding of that object becomes much larger. And it, it might sound not so relevant for our normal way of living life, of getting up in the morning and doing our chores and whatnot. But when it comes to acquiring, let's say, a new, um, I don't want to necessarily call it spiritual perspective, but just a new perspective or a more meaningful perspective upon life, then moving to that space where you can sort of access that is absolutely meaningful. It's like giving you completely new glasses um, that you look through at the world somehow. So moving from 
sort of a chronological, mechanical view of things and objects and people to a more kind of timeless view of them. How does this way of seeing and perceiving the world impact relationships? And you can get as personal or not as you want. Like, how does, how does this paradigm impact relationships? Uh, tremendously, as you can imagine, if you just have, um, if you just think about it, any relationship that you had in your life, no matter if it's a friendship or a romantic connection or um, your parents or whatever it is, and um, you sort of zoom out from the normal way of looking upon those people, which, if we are being honest about it, is somewhat um, objectifying them and us. It's a little bit like, okay, I'm like one figure on the big uh, game of life there, and then there's another figure there, which is my father or my lover or my friend. And then we are sort of moving as figures currently in a similar space on that big board of life somehow. This is a little bit the perception that we have. Even then objectifying the other as, okay, so right now um, this person is also a beautiful person. We can agree to that. But how I'm sort of categorizing that person in my mind is a bit like, this is the one that I do such and such with. So for example, this is my parents and they are here to uh, nurture me and to raise me and to give me money when I need it. Or they are here to nag me and to annoy me and so I have an opposition to talk against. Or this is my friend and this is the person I call when I, when I have relationship troubles and this is the person I call when I need to move my house and this is the person that I call when I need sex and now I'm exaggerating of course but there's something in our mind that sort of categorizes ourselves and other people around us. And now when we move out of this uh, space of uh, constraint to this, let's say, more separated viewpoint, and we come to a place where we feel, well, wait a second, if I'm moving out of the timeline and all of a sudden I per perceive everything that was ever with this person, everything that connects us, everything that brings meaning and purpose um, to our lives by being in inter an interaction, the appreciation of that person is completely different. It's different to think, okay, this is the person that I can gossip with. Or if you, if you have a perception of, wow, this is a soul that I've been around with for maybe even many, many lives, if that is something that you can perceive. And um, they have this meaning in my life. They inspire me in this way, and I'm inspiring in that way. And all of a sudden, you have a unifying factor between the two. And this is something that Tantra keeps underlining, that everything must come from the heart, because the heart is the unifying space of everything. What do you mean by that? It's like um, just removing the idea of, let's say, a solidified me, which is the idea of ego, right? Just removing that idea, even just, you know, sometimes we have these um, beautiful moments when we see a breathtaking research. For example, lately I was looking at a research that was suggesting somehow with what um, 
frequency, actually the atoms and the substance of our body changes up simply just calculating how many liters per day we breathe and we eat and we drink and then sort of estimating that our weight stays the same in what a fast period of time we actually have a, a, a full turnover of elements of just atoms in our being. And just such research is usually something that for people is like, wow, it's mind-boggling, really, or maybe it makes you doubtful and tense. And it sort of shows how we are usually going around with somewhat of a shell, with somewhat of a solidified idea of me and not me, right? And then when you just remove that one idea, you don't have to change in any other way, but you just take out this idea of separation. You just take out this idea that um, you are somewhat an isolated part of this universe that is just trying to move through and getting the best out of it. But all of a sudden, you just perceive on a day-to-day -day basis in every little moment of your life that you are in connection. You just eat that oatmeal and you're in connection. And you meet that beautiful person that you never met before and you're in connection. Just al already this little change, it usually makes a big difference in people's life regarding their happiness and also regarding their, um, let's say, appreciation for themselves, for others and for life itself, just because they're in touch all of a sudden. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to pin down more how that idea, how you make sense of that idea. Because I'll say personally, I, I like to think about the Big Bang. Um, when I was like 19 or 20, I got very, very, very interested in Zen Buddhism and the work of Alan Watts. And he talks a lot about the Big Bang. And so how that has impacted me is if I'm annoyed with someone or if I'm having a challenging time with someone or, or I'm frustrated or whatever, I think about the Big Bang. And I think about that we all come from that central place, you know, billions of years ago out, out in, the, in, in the galaxy. So I think for me, that's, that's how that, you know, practically in terms of day-to-day -day life, I find that concept really helpful. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about something that's more heart-centered, perhaps, than what I'm talking about. Like, how, how do you use this idea in daily life, and how, how would you express it and flesh that idea out a little more? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> So actually, um, I like very much this uh, analogy with the, with the Big Bang. It's probably one of the most uh, scientist-tolerant ways of looking upon such a somewhat maybe hippie type of concept. Yeah, it, it, our we Western one. rational mind likes that, right? It's yes. like, yeah, that, one, that one's very comfy to, to embrace that idea. Yes, and it's actually um, a wonderful um, even... I don't want to say proof, but like um, point of how very often science and these more mystical things, they, they sort of overlap. Because the Big Bang is a wonderful way of understanding, okay, wait a second, if we all came from that one little tiny hot all together bunch of, of mass, of matter, then obviously we must be somewhat connected, right? And that's a beautiful idea to start from. And then as I see it, um, such a moment of of having this understanding, just becoming aware in one moment, okay, wait a second, we might be having a fight or there might be a problem right now, but actually we all came from that one little thing and then frustration dissipates. That's a moment of tapping into that heart space that I was talking about, that, let's say, dimension of ourselves that is anyways never separated. So something in us, and if you went into Zen Buddhism, then you know this idea, something in us 
always stays the same, is always unified with the universe. Alan Watts actually said at one point, in the same way, like a uh, apple tree apples, the universe peoples. Yeah, exactly. And that's a very, very beautiful and also, of course, intimidating idea, somewhat, um, to understand this principle. So when you tap into that moment of, okay, the Big Bang, all right, connected with everything, that's your gateway somehow into the soul. And what happened for me at one point, actually before I, I entered the path fully and with guidance and so forth, is that I had many of those moments where I just became aware, wait a second, I do feel connected. When I'm not in my head, when I'm not arguing and being frustrated and suffering or whatever other things I keep myself busy with, then actually I do feel connected. When I just pause just for one second and I just become, I don't even want to say centered into the now, just present, just a little bit, then immediately this um, entering into the into this heart space somehow happens. And then it's just a matter of somehow staying there. For me, one of the most powerful things before I came to the yoga, it was I was sleeping on a terrace under the stars in Berlin. It was amazing. And I would lie there every night and I would look at the stars or at the moon, whatever was in front of me. And I would have sort of my hands in front of my chest as I was lying down and I was pushing as if pushing space and then becoming aware, okay, if I push space like one meter in front, then it's pushing against the moon. And it was freaking me out. It was making me so happy, just this very simple thought, you know, which is sort of fairy tale type of thought, but it also just made so much sense in that moment. Like I felt that connection. I would lie there and just feel how the mattress, how I'm touching the mattress and the mattress is touching the floor and the floor is touching the house and the house is touching the earth and the earth is touching my mother's house or my friend's house or my lover's house and their bed and their mattress and them. And then I would just feel, yeah, I mean, it's just an illusion that we are apart from one another. We are just continuously united. And it would just sort of uh, switch me into this heartful state and then what occurred actually just before like maybe a half a year before I came to the to the path of yoga was that what I know now is I entered into a state of soul awakening for a few months and it was continuous I was continuously in this state of feeling all connected with everything around I would put my hand on the table and it was nearly like an orgasm touching the table and just feeling how the atoms of my hand are blurring with the atoms of the table. And I will continuously be in a state of meditation of these sensations. And that was enough to basically put me into one of the most mystical states that you can think of, this continuous awakening of the soul. Simple things like walking down a staircase and touching the handrail and just feeling how there's a connection between me and the handrail. Or riding on my bike through Berlin and seeing a signpost and just as I'm coming closer to the signpost just feeling meditating even not knowing what I'm doing upon how the space is getting smaller between us and then as I leave the signpost behind because I'm riding further it's growing again but I remain connected to that signpost no matter what so all of these ideas and you will find actually in one of the most valued tantric texts which is the Vigyana Bharava Tantra, um, that all the meditation techniques that are suggested there to enter into the highest states of consciousness, they are nothing but such meditations. For example, two objects meditate upon the space in between. 
What does it do? It makes you understand everything's connected in a very direct way without somebody telling you and then you have to sing a rainbow song about it, but just perceiving it. Yes, they are connected. There's an object and there's an object and there's space in between. And this sort of switches us out of the state of mind that is in, in separation continuously. You were talking about a period of a few months where you, I think you called it your particular period of soul awakening and you felt extraordinarily connected to everything and everyone. What prompted that? Was it a, it's, it almost sounds like you were experimenting with psychedelics or something, the, the, way, you de, the way you describe it. But what, what, uh, what prompted that? Yeah, so thank God I uh, also had uh, extensive uh, research, self-research on uh, using psychedelics, so I know how it's different. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, that's what was actually not what prompted the state. It was actually in a period where I stopped taking drugs and I stopped drinking alcohol, not because I felt I must, I just, it just happened. I just felt, okay, this is my time to sort of just be more with myself. And I was allowing myself for the first time in my life to just be for a bit and just do, you know, minimal work at the university and minimal things at home and just keeping everything very simple and taking a lot of time just being. And um, I wouldn't do that in a sort of, I don't know, passive or lazy way, but I would do it very actively. So even if I would like run a little chore or something, I would aim to be in that and just be fully present in that. And um, by some wonderful, graceful um, crossroad, I ended up really falling in love with that type of state, just contemplating being and contemplating the nature of things directly without needing to know and read and sort of drill something into my mind. But just, I had this intuition that if I just perceive now what is happening, then I will know everything, which is actually something that you find written in the tantric text and not just there, actually in several traditions, this is a clear point. And um, from this continuous practice, I launched somehow into that state of soul awakening. And the actual moment of that happening, it was a pretty clear moment. Like I recall, I was sitting at the, at the edge of a lake and one of my friends, she wanted to go swimming and she was all bubbly and sweet and crazy. And I was just with her somehow. And I felt already diving into this silence um, that you also described earlier that you sort of dive into when you start to practice spiritually. And even though she was so lively and so on, it was just something that I contemplated. It was nearly like, um, if you want to refer back to Uriel's talk, like a polarization between life around me and my own consciousness observing it. And I had trained it somehow for several months now already, just observing, observing, feeling, pushing against the moon and so on. <clears throat> that then, sitting there at the edge of the lake, some sort of critical mass was reached. And all of a sudden, it was just like somebody took a shade from my eyes. And I felt clearly I will never see the world in the same way. It was just like looking over the rim of your plate. And you can never, ever go back and just pretending the world is just a plate, right? But it came to such an extent, it was not just a moment of revelation where, yes, okay, now I understand this more and I can never go back to not understanding it, but it was like revealing a completely new way of seeing the world. All of a sudden I felt one with the water, with her swimming there, with the sky, everything sort of blended into oneness somehow. And then that state just 
stood with me for several months and I would just sometimes exit it a little bit but it just took a conscious touching of the table or just uh, becoming aware that I'm sitting on a chair that is touching the floor and I would re-enter that state so it was actual practice but I was not aware that I was practicing During this period how social were you? Did you make an effort to spend a lot of time by yourself or, or yeah um, yeah, it was actually very interesting because my entire understanding of my social needs completely switched because uh, I noticed already before that um, it agitates me a lot um, to, to miss out. Like I had a major fear of missing out. And um, I How old are you in this period, roughly? Um, like when I, when I had this first soul awakening, I was 22. And um, in the year before, I started to observe myself quite a lot and sort of have more and more understandings of myself and just perceiving time uh, spontaneously in a different way. As I said, I had already these awakening moments when I was a child and they just seemed to deepen in this period that I sort of was out in life and just you know, starting to engage with the universe around me in a much larger scale than I was when I was living with my parents. And... Um, <clears throat> Somehow, um, the social need and sort of feeling that I always need to be the last leaving the table and I always need to be, um, I always need to sort of make an effort to fit in. I mean, I was never like blending in with everything, but I would find my place, which was a bit more of a louder and bit more enthusiastic place, but still, I would make an effort to fit into that group and to find my loud, enthusiastic place in that group. And, um, Somehow, when this um, period started with the soul awakening, I just noticed um, very naturally a lot of these agitations and desires and apparent needs, which were not real deep needs, just falling away. And all of a sudden, I would just there would be a full party going on, and I would just feel like, you know what? I'm complete. It's good. It's enough. And it was not like coming from a, a superior place or anything like that and oh look at me I'm so spiritual not at all because I was not at all in touch with this type of world so I would just feel I'm fulfilled that's good now I'm going home and then I would be very very fulfilled being alone and somehow automatically I would spend more time alone just because I wouldn't have any more this urge to <clears throat> sort of fulfill this social part of things and I felt that actually my relationships and my overall Mm. like the whole social game the way I perceive people the way they perceive me it just became so much easier because I just stopped trying I was just myself and all of a sudden people perceived me as much more radiant and happy and feminine and like there was, was so much positive feedback and they were like what's going on with you like who is this new you and I was like I don't know I'm just myself like I'm just discovering how I can just live life without all these tensions around it I'm, I'm thinking about the conversation so far and I'm imagining someone listening to this hearing about your experience and you mentioned that you've had a lot of these experiences ever since you were a small child and I imagine someone might think oh well this you know this way of being in the world this paradigm whatever you want to call it it's something you're born with which I don't believe and I know you don't believe either I think you know there are practical ways to be in this state more often for someone intrigued by this idea that you're talking about, this way of being in the world, what are, do you think are some first steps? Um, what are some practices that are, that are helpful in this regard? 
Yeah. <clears throat> so I want to make it very clear here that I wasn't born enlightened or anything <laughs> like that. But one, let's say, talent that I came with was to have um, general curiosity for life, to be very open to life, and to have faith. I was just born with faith. And this is, I mean, of course, a tremendous quality to have. And actually then meeting Uriel and understanding how it can be to come into this path without any faith, because for him it was the total opposite, was very interesting for me to see. Nevertheless, the point was, faith or not, um, you can only really enter the path if you practice. And with this, in this regard, we are all equal somehow. Before you continue, I want to pause. Because faith is a word that brings up mixed emotions in me. What, what does that word mean to you? Like when you use it in this context, what are you, what are you getting at? Mm -hmm. So I'm not so much talking about, a, you know, faith in, in Jesus or in some particular religious character or, or dogma or anything like that. But it's much more a sense of, uh, I, like to, I like to refer to it as a sense of mystery, actually. Mm -hmm. just, being, just being open to perceive that there is a lot more than meets the eye. There is a lot more than we know. And actually one of the major practices in Zen and some Zen currents is to contemplate that you know nothing. And this can just catapult you into a complete mystical union with everything, right? So um, this faith that I'm talking about is more of an openness to perceive that mystery, like a willingness to, to just put a question mark, to just say, really? Am I sure that I am not this wall over there? Am I sure that nothing is connected? Am I sure that it has to only be that way? Am I sure that I only am because I think? Am I sure, really? So somehow to have this curiosity, and I must say that actually for me, many of the um, very renowned and uh, genius um, characters from science, for me they prove to be one of the most faithful people because they keep asking this and keep reaching out into the mystery and they for example uh, prove their faith by uh, keeping up the search by continuously you know rediving into the mystery of the everything and i feel this is what faith actually is it's not about this so-called blind faith of following a certain dogma of being like yeah jesus is real great not so much that, but must, much more the openness towards the universe. And it is a gift that some people come with, and I'm one of the lucky ones. And for some people, they sort of have to work on that. They just have to um, come to a place of observing long enough to tap into the mystery, because it becomes very obvious when you start watching things and when you start understanding how little we know. There's no way of missing the mystery somehow. Absolutely. And I identify 100% with everything you just said, but the curiosity and like, I love the mystery of, of life. I always have. And I, I would never associate the word faith with that. So you've, you've given me something to think about. That's interesting. But I interrupted you. You were talking about, or I was asking you about um, ways for people to inhabit this way of being sort of practical ways that, you know, people can um, inhabit this paradigm a little more. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, I feel the key into um, making this whole 
thing that we talked about, not just a fancy idea or some sort of interesting thing to flirt with, but making it a real thing that always requires systematic practice. And there's just no way around it. Not for the ones that were born with, I don't know how many samadhi states, ecstasy states in their childhood or seeing the light coming out of the mountains or I don't know what. Also those will need to practice. All of us need to come to a place of, a, of being systematic about it. Like with everything in life, you know, like if you want to have a, a good business, you need to be systematic about it. You don't have to be pedantic, but systematic at least. If you want a good relationship, you need to be systematic about it, even if people think that might kill all the fun and the juice. But no, you can be systematic about being spontaneous, for example. And it's the same here. You need to be systematic and really wanting to explore that. And just the mere wish of wanting to explore life as it is, the direct perception of life as it is, already that will launch you into such an exploration and uh, sort of cover quite an, a bit of the path. And uh, such practices could, of course, be um, anything that allows you to be very aware. May that be a very aware and, and um, focused yoga practice. Or may that be um, meditating. May that be contemplating nature and being very, very lucid, very aware in that. May that be walking the street and being very aware in that. May that be cleaning the toilet and being very aware in that. Any systematic exploration of awareness will lead to this eventually. And now, of course, we shouldn't fool ourselves because we can sort of... Um, put our mind on the semi-autopilot where it says, yes, okay, I got the point, you want to be aware, let me be aware for you. And then we go back to sleep and sort of just put the mind on the job. We do that in meditation quite often. You might have noticed that there's this temptation of just saying, yeah, okay, I got the point what to focus on, so, you know, mind take over and I'm going back to sleep or fantasizing about the next uh, desireful adventure that I'm going to have. So... Um, Training this continuous awareness in whatever way you fancy, that's somehow the gateway. And when you talk about a system, do you see Tantra as a system? When you talk about a system, do you mean Buddhism or a particular school of Buddhism? Or, or what, what do you mean? Or do you think that all of them are valid in their own way and just picking any of these is a, is a way to get to this destination that you're talking about? Yeah, I was actually contemplating exactly this question before I came here. Um, because I thought we might talk about this, right? So I was um, thinking about this, um, let's say, place that Tantra takes within the spiritual realm, because you can look at it from two viewpoints. You can look at it historically. And then Tantra, as much as any other um, religion or philosophic stream or whatever it is, anything that is authentic and not just, you know, to rip off people, but authentic explorations into life. Um, Tantra is just one of them, right? It's just one particular type of yoga. Historically speaking, you would say, okay, it started then and then in the Hindu Swelly and then it explored like this and like that. And then this is a stream and this person sort of belongs to it and so forth. But then if you think further of it and you're like, okay, but how do you make this categorization? Because Ramakrishna never sat there and said, I'm a tantric. He said, I'm a lover of Kali, that makes him a Hindu. And then he said, I'm a lover of Allah, and that makes him uh, Islamic. And then he said, I'm a lover of Christ, and that made him Christian. But what made him tantric? Why do people say that he's a tantric? Because he never made love, so that's not a point. Um, he never, I don't know, did any of these uh, super 
crazy energetic things that sometimes are referred to as tantric practices, but actually he was he's one of the models within the tantric realm because he lived in accordance with the principles that, that Tantra sort of suggests. And that's somehow the second way of looking upon Tantra and um, understanding it much more as a set of principles, as a viewpoint. And then within those viewpoints, you could apply a ton of practices. And eventually, actually, you will on the way lose that word of Tantra and actually see, okay, it's just we're just dealing with a description of reality here that allows us to sort of... Um, perceive reality as it is maybe a little faster than without this system, if you want to call it that way. So um, I was contemplating that, in fact, any path that you will choose, it will eventually become, um, principally speaking, a tantric path, because eventually you will come to the place where um, you will ask yourself, okay, how, how does all this religious or philosophical exploration meet with life? Even if I meditated my entire life like Milarepa did, what's so tantric about Milarepa? He's sitting in a cave meditating. He's not in touch with life. No, but he brought it into life to the degree that he was able to fly and that he was able to, I don't know, disappear and reappear and do all sorts of magic things and so forth. But simply ending on that path, because somehow all paths need to come to a conclusion where they meet life. And principally speaking, that's where all paths become somewhat tantric, because that's the principle of tantra, bringing the spiritual into life. Could you flesh that idea out a little bit more? Bring the spiritual into life? Yeah, so if you look upon um, those people historically that called themselves tantrics, they were basically known to approach the entirety of creation as a tool to enlightenment. So other than negating life, as in moving to a cave, eating nettles, going to the monastery, sort of cutting ourselves out from life, they would explore into life, even to a crazy degree like um, the old Agoris were doing, and um, some of them are still around, who were sitting by the fireplace and smoking a huge uh, chillum and, um, and then disappearing because they would use and transmute and sublime the energy of that intense, 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 crazy experience, right? Um, or they would um, meditate sitting upon corpse to become aware of the um, sort of transience of life and of being. So coming from those very crazy approaches to sort of enter into creation and meditate upon the transcendent within creation, meditate upon the godly within creation, rather than going to a cave and meditating in peace somehow, meditating while you are smelling the, the uh, scent of burning flesh on the next, uh, how you call it, funeral pyre, right? And from that, which is quite crazy approach, we sort of subtracted this principle of simply remaining fully in touch with life while exploring um, the spiritual dimension of our being within life. And that somehow means that we shift the entire viewpoint upon life, but we don't shift the actions. We don't need to stop doing certain things. Hence, tantrics have sex and tantrics... Um, eat nice and fluffy food or whatever, cake. Or I love fluffy food. 
<laughs> anything that you might desire. Um, and tantrics travel and tantrics enjoy life and tantrics have jobs and families and they enter creation and remaining in creation they find the divine. And um, yeah, this is sort of what this means and it can, can be brought to an extreme point even where then you find some of the old tantric masters which were fishermen and were just working and tolling their whole lives but then in the moment they died they were described to just transform into golden light and disappear into a rainbow, which is basically the sign of being completely spiritually accomplished. Um, but managing to do that just while cutting fish and going out on the sea. So this is sort of the, the ground principle of Tantra. You can be in life and not be swallowed by life. You can be in life and not be just um, sort of pushed around and reactive to its hassles and pleasures and things. But you can remain within life and in the same time be the observer of life. And with that, you come to what the tantrics call the supreme asceticism. And that's actually how tantra sometimes de describes themselves. They say, guys, actually, we are the most um, uh, syllabatic, is that the word? Like if you apply celibacy, we are the, oh, you know? Celibate. Yeah. We are the most celibate of all of us because we remain completely in touch with the everythingness and with the transcendence of God while making love. You need to step out of making love in order to achieve that state. So who's the real uh, person with celibacy here? Who's the real ascetic? And this is something that Tantra has brought forth a lot within especially the biographies of saints and so forth, underlining this, this part, that actually you only come to a complete freedom of something if you're free of it while you're in it. And of course, this is a tricky, slippery slope because you might be in it and not at all free and pretend you're ultra-spiritual right there, but actually you're just wasting your life. There you have it, my friends. I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with Blandine. And just to let you know, part two will come out next Tuesday. So if you haven't done so already, be sure you subscribe to the show to be notified when part two comes out. And you can find more information about Blandine. You can find more information about the wonderful yoga school she's part of here in Chiang Mai at tantrayogathailand.com. Before I let you go, I'll remind you that ratings and reviews are absolutely crucial for any podcast success including this one you're listening to right now. So if you haven't done so already, please be sure to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Thank you very much for listening, friends. I'm looking forward to talking to you next Tuesday. Before then, I'll remind you that life is short, far too short to not investigate the immeasurably deep waters of Tantra. I'll talk to you very soon. <laughs>